Hi, friends. I'm back after a short hiatus, um, mostly because of the holiday, but also because I've been researching this particular episode. Today's episode is a little bit different. Instead of interviewing someone, I am uploading the audio of a video that I have uploaded on both my YouTube and Rumble. If you prefer to see this in video format, you can find the links to those videos in the description down below. I spent a good amount of time researching this episode, so it's full of a whole lot of information. Hopefully, you're able to stick through it. In the meantime, let's just go ahead and get this thing started. Welcome to It's Mercedes, honest conversations for freedom-minded women. I'm your host, Mercedes, founder of Libertas Sisters. In every episode, I invite a guest to discuss topics such as femininity, relationships, the culture war, self-reliance, politics, and freedom. And let's be honest, whatever else I'm in the mood for. So pop in those headphones, pour yourself a beverage, and settle in. Let's get this episode started. I just want to go ahead and state that I would rather lose my job than out one of my students to their families. Um, being a safe person in a safe place for kids that don't have that at home is one of the best parts of being a teacher. Um, so yeah, I'm not doing it. I don't know. Fire me, sue me, take me to jail. Hey friends, it's Miss Sadie. This is where I come up with a question, I thoroughly or overly research it, and then I come to you with my findings and my opinions depended on those findings. And today I am going to discuss the topic, you may have heard the term groomer recently in a lot of social media, on videos, and uh, in the interesting space of Twitter. I want to give you guys a heads up. I'm not planning on doing a whole lot of censoring on this video. So there is some spicy content up ahead. And because of that, if there are small children listening, I would recommend that you save it and listen when they're are no kiddos around. All right, let's get ready to dive in. So as I mentioned earlier, there's been a national discussion on parental rights versus gender identity and transgender guidelines and curriculum. The left is focused on the Republican-sponsored state legislation, such as the Florida Parental Rights Bill. They even dubbed it the Don't Say Gay Bill. Okay, they're particularly upset about that one, claiming that this legislation is rooted in hatred and some form of phobia, I believe, Alabama recently passed some legislation also. The right wants to protect their parental rights, such as having a voice in the care and education of their children, which they should because that's their constitutional right as parents. Specifically, the education of children on sexual issues and to be informed about what is happening in school with their children. The latest battle is about labeling the gender identity agenda as grooming. The left is not a fan about this. Unfortunately, that's what is happening. And the right has decided to double down on using the term groomer, specifically when we're talking about gender identity grooming. And I am team double down. I think that this is appropriate. And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about in this video. So if you've been wondering with yourself is what is happening grooming, the answer 
is yes. The gender identity guidelines for children and adolescents that government agencies, teachers, unions, and school boards and school districts across the country have adopted promote not only grooming of gender identity, but in my opinion, creates an environment where educator sexual abusers can take advantage because the guidelines normalize behavior that puts students at risk. This is especially frightening since sexual abuse of students in schools is a hundred times more likely than abuse by priest. And yes, you heard that correctly. I'm going to hit on a few points to support this. What is grooming and grooming behavior, gender identity guidelines adopted by teachers associations such as the National Educators Association, school boards, school districts, examples of schools who aided in concealing a student's gender identity from parents, schools' gender identity curriculum, the prevalence of educator sexual abuse in public schools, and finally, shortfalls in tracking educator sexual abusers. So let's first talk about grooming. When people hear the word groomer or grooming, they immediately think about sexual abuser grooming. But grooming can also be relatively benign. Think about how a boss may groom their protege, for example. Now, is the grooming that's being done in schools by educators and who I would also label as gender activists a benign type of grooming? The answer is no. The study Stages of Sexual Grooming, Recognizing Potentially Predatory Behaviors of Child Molesters, published in the journal Deviant Behavior, defined grooming as a process by which a person prepares a child, significant others, and the environment for the abuse of this child. Specific goals include gaining access to the child, gaining the child's compliance, and maintaining the child's secrecy to avoid disclosure. This process serves to strengthen the offender's abusive pattern as it may be used as a means of justifying or denying their actions. A October 2020 article on Psychology Today titled How to Recognize the Sexual Grooming of a Minor, lays out the stages of grooming and how grooming is acted out. These are the stages of sexual grooming of a minor, along with some of the behaviors which I saw during my research. Stage 1, Victim Selection such as looking for a minor that is compliant, trusting of adults, has low self-esteem, is lonely, or and troubled. Stage two, gaining access and isolation. The abuser may be involved in youth-serving organizations or clubs, manipulates the family to gain access, engages in activities with the minor that excludes the parents, or separates minor from peers and family. Stage three is trust development. The abuser will appear charming, nice, and likable, have a good status and reputation, considered a pillar of the community, and will give the minor attention. Stage four, desensitization to sexual content and physical contact. The abuser will do this by asking the minor questions about their sexual experience or relationships, teaches the minor sexual education, and shows the minor pornography through images, magazines, or videos. The final stage, stage five, post-abuse maintenance behaviors, the abuser will tell the minor not to tell anyone what happened and encourages the minor to keep secrets. James Lindsay, who has done a great job covering the subject of gender identity grooming, defines grooming as the deliberate act of bringing a child into a sexual, political, or racial ideology, practice, cult, or lifestyle without the knowledge or consent of his or her parents for the aim of isolating them from their family so the external party can abuse and manipulate them. Now that we've touched on the stages of grooming and grooming behavior, let's go through some examples of the gender identity guidelines, curriculum, and real-life events, and I'll mention or label what parts are grooming behavior. After reviewing the gender identity guidelines that have been implemented by many government agencies, teachers, unions, and school districts, parents have a right to be concerned. And 
there is most definitely some grooming going on. Here's a rundown of all the guidelines and what a lot of these guidelines have in common, primarily from the National Educators Association, but many school boards have kind of use that as a springboard to create their own guidelines. I'm not going to be touching on everything, but the things that I feel are most significant and applicable for this video. Affirmative care is the only appropriate response to any child who's demonstrating wishes to change gender. Gender identity and transition plans do not require consent of parents. Child can use different names and pronouns, including the latest craze of neo-pronouns without the parent's knowledge. Students can enter into gender transition or gender identity plans without parental consent. It's not appropriate to consider students' age, grade, developmental disability, or mental disability, no mental health evaluation or treatment required, to question the child in any way is not acceptable, and the guidelines are quick to point out that to question is rooted in a lack of understanding. A student gender identity is not to be doubted and should be accepted without any additional requirements. The primary concern and emphasis is to not discriminate against a transgender child or cause any undue stress or anxiety to the child. This includes restrooms. A student is allowed to use whatever restroom corresponds to their gender identity, citing everything should be done to create a safe and inclusive environment for the transgender student. Now, here's the thing. Mind you, if a student, say a young girl, is uncomfortable with sharing a restroom or a locker room with a male, it is pointed out. In fact, it is recommended that if a girl is uncomfortable using facilities with a male student or a transgender girl, which is a biological male, then the girl should request to use another bathroom. The reason that this is done is because there is a priority or an emphasis on the trans student in this case, the male, to have a safe and inclusive environment and not experience any kind of discrimination or discomfort. The reason that they do this is that they're citing that to cause any discomfort to this child will put them in harm's way. It will ultimately cause so much distress that they could potentially become depressed and spiral and the end result being suicide. Now, of course, we don't want a child to get so depressed that they end up committing suicide suicide or, or harming themselves in any way. Just notice that the priority here is not to question, to immediately affirm, and to not cause any displacement or discomfort to that student and not take into any consideration the comfort or the fact that a young girl could potentially have to be exposed to something that maybe they're just not ready to be exposed to. Now, in regards to a young girl feeling uncomfortable with using a restroom with a male or transgender female, transgender girl, trying to keep this all straight, okay? The NEA guidelines states that Quote, it is important to remind students that behaving in a way that makes others uncomfortable is unacceptable and a violation of the school's commitment to ensuring the safety of all students. The NEA also cites a 2015 Media Matters study, and we all know that Media Matters has absolutely no agenda and is completely unbiased, that states that there has not been reported any incidents of harassment or inappropriate behavior as a result of allowing a transgender student to access facilities they're comfortable with. Until next time, stay honest and stay free. Now, it is absolutely true that a transgender student does not inherently put another student at risk, but we can't be naive and not acknowledge that it does create an opportunity. We all remember the Loudoun County incident where the school helped cover up a male gender fluid student 
who assaulted a girl in the girl's bathroom and went on to assault another girl at another school. And this leads me to wonder how many more incidents like this go unreported and covered up. A common thread with all of these guidelines and policies is that the parent has no say in the care and life of their child while the child's in school, creating a wedge between child and parent and undermining the parent's constitutional parental rights. It normalizes children keeping secrets from their parents. Also, anything other than affirmative gender identity care is unacceptable and possibly child abuse. Therefore, if a parent is supportive and caring of their child, a child is taught that if their parent does not immediately affirm, for example, allowing them to use different pronouns, a different name, just different gender identity, that means that the parent is unsupportive and that creates another wedge between child and parent. Because remember that the teacher is telling the student essentially that if the parent does not use their pronouns, accept that they're of a different gender, and that means that they're not supportive, which is just, of course, going to create a wedge between the child and the parent. Last year, Abigail Schreier reported on her substack about leaked audio of two California teachers from Buena Vista Middle School in Los Angeles who talked about how they monitored and recruited students and concealed from parents that students had changed their gender identity. The recording was from a workshop led by the teachers titled How We Run a GSA in Conservative Communities in Order to Keep the Groups Private from Parents. The teachers recommended that no records be kept so they could plead ignorance if ever questioned by parents and to use less descriptive names for their clubs like UBU rather than Gay Straight Alliance. We totally stalked what they were doing on Google when they weren't doing schoolwork, Baraki said. One of them was Googling trans day of visibility and were like, check, we're going to invite that kid when we get back on campus. Whenever they follow the Google Doodle links or whatever, right, we would make note of those kids and the things that they bring up with each other in chats or email or whatever. California teachers have also advocated for Prism Club, a less ubiquitous name for the Students' Coalition for Gender, Sex, and Sexuality, to be held during lunchtime in order to avoid having to inform the parents. Yes, that lunchtime is kind of that sweet spot where the kids don't need to come earlier or stay late and kind of eliminates a little bit of that parent interaction if there are kids who would like to attend, but maybe their parents um, are unaware that um, they're interested in participating or unaware that they are out at school. So if we can get it to happen at lunch, that seems like a really good structure to you know protect the kids' identities and protect and allow them to attend. I mean... This is just some sneaky, sneaky stuff. Yes, I almost cursed there. But there's plenty of colorful language coming. In these recordings, the teachers, which were the ones that founded the UBU club, expressed that they had good attendance in the beginning of the club, but that students eventually would lose interest and attendance would dwindle because the kids wanted to go hang out with their friends instead of sit in a circle with their teachers and talk about gender identity because they're kids. In the leaked recordings, one of the teachers admitted to surveilling the students, as in spying on the students, as in every step you take, I'll be watching you. 
And what were they surveilling? But the students' internet activity, Google searches, and hallway conversations in order to target the children to recruit them for the UBU club. Most of the surveillance was done during COVID distance learning. Some of it was done in person in the hallways. If you're wondering how did these teachers surveil the students? How were they able to track their Google searches and what they were doing on the computer? And that was through a program called GoGuardian. It's a software that is installed on school-owned computers used to monitor what students are doing on their computers during class. According to GoGuardian's website, the software is used by 3,000 schools with over 22 million K-12 through students. One of the teachers was sure to put herself in a position to control the messaging. Oh, Ms. Caldera, you're so sweet. You volunteered to do that. Of course I'm so sweet that I volunteered to do that because then I control the information that goes home. It was later reported that a mother discovered that her daughter, a seventh grade student at the same school, Buena Vista Middle School, who had already come out to her mother the year before as bisexual, which her mother, of course, knew she came out to her. Her mother was supportive. But then she discovered that her daughter was using a different name and different pronouns in the school without their knowledge. The mother was completely unaware that their daughter was identifying as a boy until she was called to a meeting at the school. The mother was emotional during the meeting, but the mother was supportive. She asked and she wanted to know, what can I do to support my child? However, following the meeting, one of the teachers called CPS because the parents didn't use the correct pronouns with their daughter. The police then showed up at the parents' home to inform them that a police protective service complaint had been filed. Several more meetings with teachers revealed that her daughter had searched online for information regarding suicide, though the school failed to contact the parents and let them know of this. Now, if you're thinking that the teachers are being a little excessive calling CPS or filing a CPS complaint over pronouns, I would say, yes, you are correct. But you have to remember that these teachers see it as abusive behavior, as the parent is putting the child at risk. And you can't tell me that a child doesn't pick up on this, that Someone that is in a position of authority who has an influence over the child is telling them that their parent doesn't care about them or isn't supportive of them. That is going to make it into the child's psyche. I'm sorry, but it just is. Thankfully, during COVID and virtual learning, the daughter returned to herself and her female name, leading the mother to believe that her daughter had been influenced to be trans. The mother did have an opportunity to confront the teachers during a school board meeting, a video of which went viral. They've done nothing wrong. A mistake? How long of a mistake? How many mistakes are we going to take before my child almost lost her life? They didn't tell me that my child... You allowed these teachers to open their classrooms teaching predatorial information to a young child, a mindful child that doesn't even know how to comprehend it all. How do you not know what was going on on your own campuses? Did you think that no parent would ever come forward? You will not quiet me today. I will stand here today and protect my child along with every other child who has not come forward yet. Do you... Do, you, do they have psychiatry degrees that I was unaware of? Because I didn't hire them, okay? I did not hire them to sit there and nitpick my child's brain. You took away my ability to parent my child, even before I had any knowledge. I didn't even get to show support. You asked for support, I didn't get a chance. You planted seeds, Ms. Caldera and Ms. Baraki, Mr. Baraki and you, Ms. Pagarin. 
Your job was to educate my child in math, science, English, etc. Do your job and let me do mine. They assumed, they assumed that my child needed your aid and resources. They pushed it in the face. And tonight, I will stick up for her. Ms. Caldera, you're guilty. Ms. Baraki, you're guilty. You changed her personal documentation, her gender, her name, her email. They downgraded me in front of my child and allowed me to question myself as a mother. You sat there and told me how my child was going to be. And then you wrapped your hands around her while I sat across the table and cried. Because you thought you could be there better than I, and I never got a chance. She was scared to even say anything. Your guys' voice were heard not. Now, this is just one case and probably the most well-known case, but this is happening throughout the United States. In Wisconsin, two families filed suit against their school district over their policy that allows the school to change children's names and pronouns without their parents' consent. Similar suits were filed in Montgomery County, Maryland, Clay County Middle School in Florida, Leon County Middle School also in Florida, and Madison, Wisconsin. Another pretty bad case that I found was the Chicago public school that facilitated and concealed an autistic girl's social transition without the parent's knowledge while fully aware of the girl's mental health challenges. And that's just something that you find in these guidelines. It is emphasized that regardless of a child's age, grade, or mental capacity, the priority is to affirm. Now, all of this is totally okay because it is completely appropriate to keep a parent out of the loop in order to protect a child's privacy. Gender identity is about being one's true self, and it should never, ever be questioned, and is most definitely never the result of a mental health condition or a social contagion. Like, it's definitely, most definitely not a social contagion, because you never see that happen, especially amongst teenage girls. And to not immediately affirm a child's gender identity, be it through social or medical transition, is tantamount to child abuse which is why they call CPS. Now, the guidelines, in my opinion, prime the grooming environment by creating a division between parent and child and normalizing keeping secrets. But the next step is exposing and desensitizing children to sexual content and that happens with the curriculum. Most recently, New Jersey instituted a new sex education curriculum that is to begin in the fall. This material is introducing gender ideology beginning with first grade. And as the student advances, they are exposed to more content on gender ideology, sexual orientation, and sexual education. Each course has scripts, exercises, and homework for teachers to follow. In the first grade, the course named Pink, Blue, Purple is an introduction to gender and gender stereotypes. This curriculum plants the first seeds of gender identity. The script says, gender identity is that feeling of knowing your gender. You might feel like you are a boy. You might feel like you are a girl. You might feel like you are a boy, even if you have boy parts that some people might tell you are girl parts. You might feel like you're a girl, even if you have body parts that some people might tell you are boy parts. If you're confused after hearing that or had a hard time keeping that straight, don't feel bad. I had a hard time saying it and keeping track of it and not being confused. In second grade, the course Understanding Our Bodies teaches second graders about the accurate names of body parts, a lesson that I still believe should be left up to the parents. But what I find most concerning is a use of language that primes a student for transgenderism, such as most boys have a penis. 
most girls have a vagina. In the fourth grade, the lesson What is Love Anyway? uses a video from amaze.org to teach about sexual orientation. Who you are attracted to physically and romantically is called sexual orientation. Girls who are attracted romantically and physically to other girls are homosexual and also called lesbians. Guys who are attracted physically and romantically to other guys are homosexual and also called gay. Sometimes people use the term gay for lesbians as well. People who are attracted to people of the opposite sex are heterosexual. People who are attracted to both girls and guys are bisexual. The fourth grade student is then asked to do homework to define sexual orientation. The instructions are to think of an adult you know well and trust who you could share this definition with. This could be a parent or other adult family member, a friend's parent, or someone at school. Although you would think that this would be something that would be done with their parent. Call me crazy, but I just really think that this homework should be like, go and talk to your parent. I mean, if you're going to give them the homework and you're already going to teach them the lesson, at least tell them to go and do the homework with a parent, not just any adult. I mean, these are children. They don't exactly have the best skills when it comes to judgment. The fifth grade lesson, Thinking Outside the Gender Box, goes through the definition of gender identity terms, such as gender expression and cisgender, through the game of Go Fish. The homework is to do a gender survey with an adult, not just your parent, but any trusted adult. For the seventh grade, the teacher is again directed towards amaze videos, covering the topic of puberty. The videos use language like assigned female or male at birth, biological female, cisgender, the person instead of woman regarding pregnancy, and most people have internal and external reproductive organs. A person whose biological sex is male generally has a penis, a scrotum containing two testicles, and an anus that are visible on the outside of their preparation for ejaculation. During ejaculation, the ejaculatory duct opens and pushes the semen out through the urethra. Wow, our bodies are pretty amazing. The opening of the vagina can be seen from the outside. Finally, behind the opening to the vagina is the anus. Internally, a person who is biologically female has two almond-sized organs called ovaries. Uterus is an amazing organ that has the ability to expand, to nurture and grow a fetus if and when the person becomes pregnant. The person. The person. Like, you might as well just call the poor kid a bleeder at this point. Another seventh grade course named I Am Who I Am teaches about the difference between gender expression, identity, and sexual orientation. This includes the introduction of gender neutral pronouns such as they. In the eighth grade, the course using condoms effectively, the teacher is again directed towards Amaze videos and is also instructed to demonstrate how to apply condoms using a wood penis and female condoms with a plastic mold of a uterus. Before sex, take out the condom. It should look like a little hat. Then hold the tip of the condom to remove any air and then roll the condom down to the base of the erect penis. The condom should roll easily. If not, it may be inside out and you should throw it away and get another. So if you're lucky enough, the first time you have sex won't be the last. Remember to always be responsible, protect your health and that of your partner and always use a condom. Am I the only one or did that whole bouncing car thing make anybody else super uncomfortable. I mean, I'm not trying to be a prude here or anything like that, but are we trying to encourage these eighth graders to go hook up in the back of mom's Buick or something, which they can't even drive because they're in the eighth grade? The homework assignment 
media hunt instructs the eighth grader to watch TV shows, videos, or movies and share three examples of couples that are either in a sexual relationship or talking about being in that sexual relationship and describe whether and how they talk about or actually use condoms. And then they tell them to go and just find a movie where people are making out, having sex, putting on condoms. They don't even tell them to like do it with the supervision of a parent. They just tell them, go find some media of people getting their freak on and let us know whether or not they put a condom on. Illinois' Bill SB 818 adopted the National Sex Education Standards for their sex education curriculum. The standards say grades K through 2 should learn about gender, gender identity, and gender stereotypes, and grades 3 through 5 learn about masturbation, puberty blockers, and trans children. A teacher in Maryland reportedly used a photo depicting Mel Genitalia to teach middle schoolers about art. And it continues into high school, who the left seems to forget are still minors. The book 642 Things to Write About was used as a guide for writing prompts for high schoolers. It includes a prompt for students to describe a sex scene that they would not show to their mother and a follow-up prompt that tells them to write a version of the same sex scene that they would show to their mother. The books Lomboy and Gender Queer, which are found in many public high school libraries, caused quite the uproar because not only did they describe scenes of sex between men and boys, which is pedophilia, but also illustrated images of such acts. I don't understand. There seems to be this thought or like this out that if it's illustrated, it's not as bad. Just because it's illustrated does not make it appropriate for young eyeballs. It's just not appropriate. But let me tell you, there is a Fairfax mother that also did not think it was appropriate, was not pleased with it. And she let the school board know. And heads up, this is where the language gets a little colorful and explicit. So if you got some littles around, I would recommend that this is about the time that they leave. From the author, Maya Kobabe, quote, I can't wait to have your cock in my mouth. I am going to give you the blowjob of your life and then I want you inside me, end quote. From the author, Jonathan Evison. What if I told you I touched another guy's dick? What if I told you I sucked it? I was 10 years old, but it's true. I sucked Doug Goebel's dick, the real estate guy, and he sucked mine too. This is not an oversight at Fairfax I'm High sorry. School. There are children in the audience here. Do not interrupt my time. Do not interrupt my time. I would like to remind everybody. I will stand here until my time is restored and my time is finished. These books are in stock and available in the libraries of Robinson, Langley, and Annandale High School. When you look at the guidelines, policies, and curriculum as a whole, it becomes pretty clear that there is, in fact, grooming happening in the schools. These policies put the teachers in a higher place of trust than the parents. It normalizes keeping secrets from parents and peers, exposes children to sexual topics and explicit sexual content. And in my opinion, this grooming behavior could potentially create an environment that an actual sexual abuser can take advantage of. And considering that the public school system has a bigger problem with sexual abuse than the Catholic Church, we should all be concerned. Now, if you don't believe me or if you find that statement shocking, 
I'm not surprised. I didn't know anything about it. Most people don't know about it. In fact, I didn't know about it until it was mentioned in passing by an educator friend of mine. I mean, he really just nonchalantly said, well, you know, public schools have a bigger sexual abuse issue than the Catholic Church. And I'm like, which is what led me down this rabbit hole. In 2004, the No Child Left Behind Act required the Department of Education to conduct a study of sexual abuse in schools. Carol Shakeshaft, a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University who specializes in educator sexual misconduct and in 1995 published a four-year study on sexual abuse at schools, was tasked with the study. Just be warned, a lot of study and data information up ahead. So bear with me while I share all of the information. It's a lot of information. I like to be thorough, okay? In Shake Shaft's 2004 report, she estimated 10% of K-12 through students will experience sexual misconduct by a school employee by the time they graduate from high school. Mind you, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops found that from 1950 to 2002, 10,677 people made allegations that they had been abused by priests when they were minors. In her 2004 report, Sheikh Shaf estimates more than 4.5 million students are subject to sexual misconduct by a school employee before they graduate high school. This means in 50 years, a minimum of 10,677 children were abused by Catholic priests. But in the span of 13 years, an estimated 4.5 million students experienced sexual misconduct at the hands of a public school employee, sexual misconduct ranging from inappropriate comments to rape. If we were to apply Sheikh Shaf's estimate to today's K-12 student population of over 53 million students, that would mean 5.3 million students will experience sexual misconduct by a public school employee before they graduate. Sheikh Shaft does admit that there are limitations to her study that may throw these numbers off, but then she also emphasizes that that demonstrates the need for better research. If you're thinking that surely a study on this topic has been conducted since 2004, the answer is no. Most studies focus on reported sexual misconduct of educators and not how many students experience sexual misconduct from teachers. But every study that I found on this topic cites Shake Shaft's 2004 study. In 2007, AP reporters in every state and the District of Columbia identified 2,570 teachers who were punished for sexual misconduct from 2001 to 2005 for actions ranging from fondling, viewing child porn, to rape. In 2010, the U.S. Government Accountability Office estimated a teacher offender can have as many as 73 victims in his or her lifetime. A 2017 study conducted by the Department of Justice found that only an estimated 5% of school employees sexual misconduct incidents known to school employees are reported to law enforcement or child welfare. The most recent study I found on school employee sexual abuse was published in 2018, which used media alerts to figure out the amount of reported school employees arrested for sex crimes against children. The study found that in 2014, the media reported on 459 cases of school employees who were arrested for sex crimes against children. In 2015, the numbers of media reports increased to 489, which is almost three cases each day of the average school year. This study also points out that only 9% of school employee sexual misconduct cases are reported. The closest federal tracking that we have is the new Civil Rights Data Collection Survey that is conducted annually by the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. Historically, this survey did not collect information for educator sexual abuse 
on K-12 students. However, the updated survey only collects numbers for rape and sexual assault. There is currently no federal database that keeps track of educator sexual misconduct. Teachers unions historically have fought any congressional legislation requiring a federal database of educators terminated for sexual misconduct, citing concerns of due process, which I get, but also there is a problem. Like we need to kind of know where these people are. Although there is no federal database, there is a nonprofit national database of disciplined teachers called the National Association of State Directors of Teacher Education and Certification, or NASTEC for short. If a teacher loses their teaching credentials for any reason, such as sexual or physical abuse of a student, the school or district is supposed to report the information to NASTEC as members of NASTEC per voluntary membership agreements. So other schools can verify if a teacher credentials have been suspended or revoked. But this is all completely dependent on school and district reporting. There's no enforcement or consequences if they don't report because this is a nonprofit voluntary program. And that is where the problem called passing the trash comes in. As if educator sexual abuse and misconduct wasn't enough of an issue, we also have to deal with the problem of passing the trash. Passing the trash is when a teacher goes from one school to another in a different district or state after sexual abuse allegations. Now you're like, what? Like why and how does this happen? It happens either because the school or district doesn't report the loss of credentials to NASTEC, the school doesn't check against the NASTEC database to verify the credentials, or because the school and the teacher enter into a confidentiality agreement where the teacher is asked to resign in exchange for not suspending their credentials, and the school in turn agrees to only verify their dates of employment and not really say anything negative, like we caught this person or there was a rumor that this person was possibly diddling the kids. The claim most of the time is because it hasn't been reported, it's not an actual legal issue, maybe it's just rumors, or maybe, I don't know, you know, like the bad press, and so they pass the trash. A report by the Governmental Accountability Office in 2010 estimates a teacher can be transferred to three different schools before being reported to police. An expose by USA Today in 2016 exposed the issue of passing the trash and gained a lot of attention, which led to some reform. The report found that 9,000 educators disciplined by state officials were missing from NASDAQ. 1,400 of those educators' licenses had been permanently revoked, including 200 revocations prompted by allegations of sexual or physical abuse. Following the USA Today expose, NASDAQ did conduct some reforms. First, it opened the database up to private schools because it was previously only available to public schools. It then also required an initial audit from all 50 states, and it now requires an annual audit from every state. Now, it's not not that there's nothing being done at the federal level. In fact, this expose in 2016 of passing the trash was after the passing of Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, which banned the practice of passing the trash and required states to put in place laws, policies, or regulations to prohibit the passing of trash or the practice of passing of trash. It's a lot of, it's a lot of trash passing. A lot of it. As of 2018, the Department of Justice found that only four states have complied with the Every Student Succeeds Act provision, seven were working on legislation, and 39 states did not comply and were not planning on taking action, citing that current law has it covered or that they didn't know about the provision. 
That same year, the Department of Education sent a letter to state officials as a reminder of their obligation to comply or risk losing federal funding. A $600,000 contract was given to SRI International to interview state officials and ask what they had done to meet the federal requirements. The study was funded by the Department of Education in 2019 and was originally scheduled to be released on May 15th of 2021. The study, however, was delayed because of COVID and was submitted for review early 2021, but has yet to move forward. There has been a lot of discussion surrounding the topic of grooming, both sexual grooming and gender identity grooming. I spent a lot of time and effort researching this video because although I believed that grooming was happening, I wanted to confirm and make sure it was truly happening. I wanted to confirm it for myself. So I compared all of these reports, guidelines, and curriculum to the stages and behaviors of grooming. And in my opinion, you bet your sweet ass, there is grooming happening. Now, this video only contains a few well-known examples of this grooming behavior, along with the curriculum that is coming out from schools. There are many more examples out there, but I didn't want to keep you here for over an hour. Are the examples that I share with you today full-blown sexual abuse grooming? No. But schools are normalizing children keeping secrets from their parents, teaching and showing them sexual content, some of the content being very explicit, fostering division between child and parent, and creating relationships that blur the boundaries between student and teacher. I mean, have you seen these teachers on libs of TikTok? They are just dying for affirmation and acknowledgement about their gender identity or their sexuality from grade school children. It's weird. The idea of the day today is that I'm going to have to deal with coming out to my students. I know most of them are just going to assume it already, but for the few that don't, that'll be a fun conversation if it comes to that. Yeah. It's my opinion that all of this opens the door for sexual predators within the school system to take advantage. The schools are already priming the students. And although the focus is on children under the age of eight, we need to be equally concerned for all children, K through 12. One of the statistics that was confirmed multiple times during my research is that girls between the ages of 13 and 16 are the largest group of sexual misconduct victims, which I found interesting considering they are also the group that has had the most significant rise in rapid onset gender dysphoria. But that's a discussion for another video. I'll leave you with this. These guidelines and curriculum are priming the environment where a sexual abuser can take advantage. And remember, an average of 10% of K through 12 students will experience some form of sexual abuse or sexual misconduct by a school employee before they graduate high school. And one teacher, sexual abuse offender, can have as many as 73 victims over a lifetime. So that's it. That's the end. That's all I have for you today. And I know it was a lot. It was a lot of information. I get it. I researched it, but I really appreciate that you stuck through it and you made it all the way to the end. Let me know in the comments below if you think I missed anything, if you think I was unfair with anything, just keep it respectful, but I would love to hear from you. And if you did like this video, I would ask you that you give it a like, thumbs up, you know, one of those things hit subscribe. Also, just in case for some reason, you might want to go and hop over to Rumble and subscribe over there because 
YouTube may not like me. And so I'm backed up over at Rumble. And to make sure that we can keep in touch and stay connected, there is a link to my website below where you can join my email list. And you will also find the sources to all of the content and all of the articles and all of the reports and information that I shared with you today. And if you learned something new with this video, found the information beneficial, share it with someone. I'm pretty sure that YouTube is not going to be feeding the algorithm my video. And if you would prefer this in audio format, you can find it on my podcast, It's Mercedes, on all major podcasting apps. I'll be back in due time with another topic that I extensively, thoroughly, and overly research and share my findings and opinions with you. Until next time, stay honest and stay free. Thanks so much for listening to It's Mercedes, honest conversations for freedom-minded women. You can find the show notes for this episode at itsmissady.com. And if you're loving the podcast, I would be so honored if you would go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. And if you would like to have conversations like this with other freedom-minded women, visit libertasisters.com, a community of women founded on the values of femininity, self-reliance, and freedom. You can also connect with me on Instagram at itsmissady or join my email list. Until next time, stay free and stay honest.